0: Brothers and sisters, how often at funerals do we hear this word spoken with an intention to give comfort, saying about the person who has died, now he's at rest. Finally, she's at rest from her suffering. How carelessly and glibly that word rest is used when it comes to someone who has died how universally it is applied to almost everybody who has died he's at rest now she's at rest now I've never been to an Amish funeral some of you have and you know that the Amish will not dare to give assurance to anyone that they have salvation in this life but somehow at the funeral they manage to get everybody to heaven, right? The Roman Catholic Church. I've been to Catholic funeral masses and somehow they find a way to get everybody out of hell and at least in purgatory. But listen, brothers and sisters. When the person who has died has not died in the Lord, when they have not died as a regenerated believer in Jesus Christ, that person is far from a state of rest you look upon the body of the one who has passed it's all dressed up gently placed in an ornate silk lined coffin surrounded by fragrant and beautiful bouquets of flowers and the body appears to be placid and still there's a peaceful expression on the lifeless face But that doesn't tell the story in fact it belies reality Because even as the cosmetically adorned body lies in apparent tranquility and rest, the soul of the unbeliever has been transported to a place of unspeakable unrest and torment. Revelation 14.11 speaks of the fate of unbelievers, speaking about those who receive the mark of the beast, essentially unbelievers. And it says this, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night. That's what it says of the unbeliever. But on the other hand, consider the one who dies in the Lord. A regenerate believer who dies in saving union with Jesus Christ. What can we say about that one? Although his or her body has already begun to decay, and that will continue as that one's body is put in the grave. The soul of that one has been transferred to a place of perfect blissful rest. And one day the body will be raised and joined to that departed spirit, and as a body in its, with a spirit, it will forever enjoy the rest of the Lord. Listen to what Revelation fourteen thirteen says about the believer who dies in the Lord. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, "Right." Blessed, happy are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit that they may rest from their labors for their deeds. Follow after them. The unbeliever, no rest. The believer rests from his or her labors. I'm doing a little series on heaven. Began by talking about our relationships in heaven last time. And it coincided well with Easter talked about the resurrection of our bodies in heaven. And this morning, I want to talk about our rest in heaven, the believer's rest in heaven. And I have two points. The One will be very brief. A clarification of the believer's eternal rest. And then what I'm calling a classification of the believer's eternal rest. First of all, a clarification of the believer's eternal rest. Doesn't it come down to us? I don't know where from this picture of heaven as someone sitting on a cloud with a white robe, maybe a little halo around their head, strumming a harp. Passive, inactive. I don't know where that came from, but that's often the view people have of of heaven. It's a place where there's no activity. I'm just passively floating on a cloud, strumming a harp. Well, friends, there's a lot we don't know about heaven. But one thing we do know is that heaven will not be a place of inactivity. The glimpses we do have of heaven, and in a previous week I read them from Revelation 4 and 5, there's a lot of loud and glorious praise and worship going on in heaven, surrounding the throne of the Lamb and and, and of God. Loud, glorious praise. We're told in Revelation 22.3 that his bondservants, the bondservants of God and Christ will serve him. Heaven will not be a cessation of activity. It will be a place of active worship and serving God. And doesn't that make perfect sense? I mean, we were made to know God and love God. We were made to worship God and to serve God. And think about it. What was it like in the beginning in the original Eden? The the original paradise, which is going to be restored. Was it a, a time of dull, boring inactivity? No. God gave Adam and Eve, our first parents, work to do. They were given physical work. They were given mental work of of naming the animals. There's activity going on. And then we saw that there will be relationships in heaven. We will have a reunion with those who have died before us, and there will be social activity in heaven. So we need to banish from our minds the idea that heaven is going to be this place of passivity and inactivity. It will not. It will be a place of God-centered worship and God-centered service and glorious fellowship with one another In heaven. So much then for a clarification of our eternal rest. Now, for the rest of our time, I want to talk about what I'm calling a classification of the believer's eternal rest. Into what classes or categories may we divide that rest that we are looking forward to? In other words, from what particulars are we going to find rest from? First of all, heaven will bring rest from our striving against sin. Maybe you've heard it said that we are living in the the age of the church militant, and in the age to come, it will be the time of the church triumphant. Have you heard that? And that's true. The age to come is the age of the church triumphant. The age we're living in, which the apostle Paul calls in Galatians 1, for this present evil age is the age of the church militant. What does that mean? It means that we are fighting for our lives in this present evil age. This age is a light, a, a, an age of, of spiritual warfare and fighting. And much of the Christian life is described under the imagery of warfare and even intense athletic competition. Listen to some of the statements. First Timothy 6.12, Paul says to Timothy, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. The athletic imagery 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline. Literally, I buffet or bruise my body and make it my slave. Intense athletic imagery to describe the Christian life. Hebrews 12:1. More athletic imagery. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. The language of the Christian life is the language of warfare, of rigorous athletic competition, and sometimes hard work, even the the hard work of the farmer. In other places, I, I did not read. So this is the age of the church militant, The age to come is the age of triumph. But heaven will bring rest from our striving against sin. First of all, there will be no more striving against the world. It is God's will, and by world, you understand the Bible often talks about the world in an ethical sense, not the geographical world, but the world in an ethical sense. People who do not know God And the things of this mortal existence, which sometimes would pull us away from God, that's the world. You know it's God's will not to take us out of the the world, right? Jesus even prayed to the Father in his high priestly prayer. He said, John 17, 15, I do not ask you to take them out of this world, but to keep them from the evil one. The Apostle Paul, in dealing in 1 Corinthians 5 with a person who's being excommunicated, he says, don't associate with that one until they repent. Neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor, etc. Now, he says, I'm not talking about the people of the world, because otherwise you'd have to go out of the world to avoid them. But anyone who's a so-called brother. And so even Paul says, no, it's not God's will to take us out of the world, out of this godly society. You don't get saved and then all of a sudden taken immediately to heaven. We have to live in this world, in this present evil age, and we need to face its attractions and its influences. And that's why the scripture says, Romans 12, 2, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. First John 2, 15, love, not the world, neither the things that are in the world, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the father, but is of the world. And so right now we strive against the world. We strive against the love of the world because the things of this world and the thinking of this world wants to allure us away from God so that we get so preoccupied with the things of this life that we neglect our souls and the things of heaven or the thinking of this world of worldly people would allure us and pull us into its ideologies. We have to fight against the love of this world and we have to fight against the fear of this world wanting the approval and acceptance of the world. And here I want to do a little tangent. Actually, it might be a tirade. Because, brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but I am sensing that the fear of the world, the fear of man, the desire to be accepted by society has reached epidemic and pandemic proportions in our current world. Have you noticed? People are terrified to be canceled on social media, terrified to lose their jobs if they don't, you know, get vaxxed or or go along with the current ideology, the DEI. Terrified to be alienated from their friends, terrified to be given certain labels. The fear of man the fear of being rejected by society is a pandemic in our day. We have an encroaching totalitarian government. We have media controlled by leftist people. Sports is inundated with wokeness. Biological men claiming their women competing with women and winning events over the best women performers because they're biologically superior in those sports. And we hear hardly a whimper. Against it. Even the feminists who are supposed to be defending women are fairly silent when women are being usurped by biological men in their sports. You probably heard of Riley Gaines, a NCAA champion, American woman swimmer, who's a current women's rights activist, and she spoke recently at the University of San Francisco. She was assaulted physically by a man in a dress. And she was only marginally protected by the campus police. And in last I heard, there were no charges leveled against those who physically attacked her for her stance. We heard, sadly, of the wicked murders of six children, six people, three nine-year-olds, in a Christian school, elementary school in Nashville, by a transgendered person. And how does much of society respond? Calling attention to the fact that the transgendered community is being persecuted. Rather than six people being brutally murdered, three of them being nine-year-olds. And you say, this is mind-boggling idiocy. And our society is paralyzed by a fear of being called a homophobe or a transphobe. People are bowing to give people their preferred gender, even some Christians. Or you're a man, but you... Want to be a woman? We'll call you by your preferred gender. Brothers and sisters, let me say to you, it's not loving to do that. You're perpetuating their lie. If a man is a biological man, he can say he's a woman, a frog, whatever he wants. He's a man. And we do people no good to perpetuate the lie they're telling themselves. We need to speak lovingly, but you need to speak the truth. My friend, you're a man. God made you a man, or God made you a woman. You know what? What is it going to take? There is a tsunami of pressure to conform to the current ideology. And I'm of a mind to think that other than some who are given common grace, Christians, convictional biblical Christians, are going to be among the few who withstand the tsunami of pressure. And why are we able to stand against it? Because if we believe we have the mind of God on any matter, God plus no one is a majority. And if I believe I'm holding to God's truth, let the world say or do what it will. I'm standing with God. And that's why Christians, that's why the, the heat's going to turn, be turned up, because we're going to stand against the tsunami of pressure, because we have convictions that this book is true. God made them male and female. And we're going to tell the truth, and we're going to suffer for it. But anyway, so much for the world. But in heaven, the good news, there will be no world to strive against no environment of people threatening to pull us away from God. As the apostle John says, the world is passing away and it's lusts." Heaven will be a pure environment. The inhabitants of heaven will be the Holy God, the spirits of just men made perfect and Holy angels. There'll be nobody, no ideology to pull us away from God in heaven. There will be no striving against the world in heaven. There will no longer be striving against the devil in this present life. 1 Peter 5.8, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You know what it says of him regarding Jesus in Luke 4.14, the devil departed from him until an opportune time. See, the devil studies us. He knows us. He knows when you are weak. He knows when you are unguarded. He knows your weakness and his host comes at us and attacks us in those unguarded times, in those weak times. And so in this current evil age, we have to be constantly watchful and vigilant and not ignorant of his devices and prepared to resist him, firm in our faith. We have no rest from the devil's prowling and malicious designs on us. But in heaven, there will be no wily prowling devil. He will be forever consigned to the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. And he will tempt us no longer in heaven. And then there will be no more striving against our own flesh. And by flesh, you understand that it's not simply talking about our physical body, which is good, but flesh often refers in an ethical sense to our remaining sin, our sinful nature. The flesh in us calls, causes Paul to cry out, oh, wretched man that I am. How often we are beset and grieved by outbreaks of the lust of our flesh, the lust of our eyes and the pride of life. How often do we give in to the desires of the flesh and of the mind? You know, even if there was no alluring world, even if there was no prowling devil, we'd still have to fight with our own flesh, wouldn't we? Because that's not coming at us from the outside. That's bubbling up within, from the cauldron of our own heart. Even if no devil, no world, we still have our flesh to contend with, the sin that remains within us. But in heaven, there will be no flesh to strive against." Revelation 21:27 says, "Nothing unclean shall ever come into it. Our corrupt, sin-laden hearts cannot enter, and that's why in heaven, they are the spirits of just men made perfect. And then there will be no more striving against temptation. The exhortation that Jesus gave in the garden to his disciples, keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation, that exhortation will not be needed anymore in heaven. Here we face temptation at every turn. The old Puritan Richard Baxter rightly says, every sense is a snare. Every member is a snare, every creature a snare, every mercy a snare, every duty a snare to us. We can scarce open our eyes, but we are in danger. And think about it. We see beautiful things, and we're tempted to lust after them and to covet them. We have good circumstances, and we're tempted to be complacent and self-sufficient. We have difficult circumstances, and we're, we're tempted to grumble and complain and be bitter. We are given good gifts and abilities. And we're tempted to be proud and to look with contempt on others. We're given meager gifts and abilities and we're tempted to self-pity and resentment. We're put in a position of authority and we're tempted to abuse that authority. We're put under authority and we're tempted to resist and rebel against that legitimate authority. Temptation at every turn in life. Even Paul, taken up to the third heaven, even that mighty godly man, to keep him from pride was given, as we said in the previous hour, a thorn in the flesh to keep him from exalting himself. Even he needed to be delivered from the temptation to be proud that he was taken up to heaven. But in heaven, there will be no enticements to evil. We will be at rest from temptation. So in heaven, we will be free from every striving. Further, Heaven will bring rest from the committing of sin. Not only striving against sin in the form of the world, the flesh, and the devil, but heaven will bring rest from committing sin. It should be a grief to us whenever we sin. And we sin in so many areas. We, we sin in our understanding. Our understanding of truth is, is so faulty, isn't it? Often so imbalanced, we cling to one aspect of truth and we neglect the balancing truth. And it causes divisions among believers. In heaven, there will be no sins of understanding. We will all understand perfectly. We will all agree perfectly. All seeming contradictions will be reconciled. Truth will be understood perfectly and be held in perfect balance in heaven. We will not sin with our understanding. Right now, we sin in the realm of our affections. Our emotions are not often aligned or often misaligned with the emotions of Jesus. The psalmist talks about loving God's precepts and therefore I hate every false way. I dare say we don't hate error and we don't hate evil as we ought. We don't love truth and righteousness to the degree we ought. We don't love one another to the degree we ought. We don't love our neighbor to the degree we ought. We don't have the zeal for God and his glory that we ought to have. Our hearts are often cold and, and dull. We fall short of the compassion of Jesus. The sympathy of Jesus. Sometimes we're too indifferent to the suffering of others. Or sometimes we're too sentimental. Jesus was not sentimental in his compassion. Sometimes we err in our emotions by being overly sentimental. And we're not aligned with the emotions of Jesus. As a men's group, the next book we're reading is The Emotional Life of Our Lord by um, Warfield. Boy, I'm looking forward to that. I, I hope you are. The Emotional Life of Our Lord. But in heaven, we will find rest from our emotional sins. All of our affections will be aligned with the affections of Jesus. We will love what he loves. We will hate what he hates. We will have a sense of perfect justice. You wonder, will I grieve over my loved ones who have gone to hell? No, you won't. Because you will see through the lens of God's perfect justice. You will see as God sees. And we will glorify God for his mercy. We will also glorify God for his justice. Now, I know you can't uh, understand that or imagine that now, nor can I. But it's true. We will have our affections perfected and aligned with those of God in Christ. We sin with our wills. How often we make wrong choices. Causes Paul to say in Romans 7, the good that I want to do, I don't do. And the evil that I don't want to do, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. We make wrong choices. Jesus said, if you are just sinfully angry with someone, you've murdered them. If you're sinfully lustful in your mind, you've committed adultery. How often we make choices with our wills to choose contrary to the will of God. But in heaven, our wills will only choose righteousness Only obey. We will be locked into an obedient gear forever. Never again to be put into reverse. And then we have sins of our thought life. What vile thoughts can enter our minds and be harbored by them? Like Jesus said, thoughts that are murderous and adulterous. But in heaven there will be no unclean thought that will ever enter our minds. Now we have sins of the tongue. James talks about that, doesn't he, in James 3. The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity, a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the same tongue we bless, and then we turn around and curse. How often we sin with our tongues. Sometimes we talk too much. It's all about me. We stifle conversation of others because we're talking about ourselves Sometimes we talk too little. Instead of giving that word of encouragement that's needed, we're silent. Sometimes our speech is angry speech and harsh speech. speech. Sometimes it's less than truthful. Even as Christians, we shade the truth. a Half-truth, when presented as the whole truth, becomes an untruth. Oftentimes our words are ill-timed. Proverbs says, how delightful is a timely word. Yeah, you spoke it, but it was bad timing, husband often the case. But in heaven, we will speak only what is edifying. Now we have sins of omission as well as commission. How many things we failed to do that we should have done. The word of encouragement we should have spoken, but didn't. The deed of kindness we should have done, but didn't. The witness we should have given to that unbeliever, but because of the fear of man, we shrank back and our tongue was snared into silence. But in heaven... No good deed will be omitted. So Jesus in heaven, right now, he's freed us from the penalty of our sin. He's progressively freeing us from the power of sin. And in heaven, we will be freed from the very presence of sin. All striving against sin, all committing of sin will be behind us. But further, heaven will bring rest from suffering. All suffering is the result of sin coming into the world and in heaven there will be rest from bodily suffering um i didn't say this at the outset but the rest that we have in heaven when it says they rest from their labors in revelation 14 it's the word kapos which comes from a verb kapto which means to toil, it literally means to beat. To beat the breast in grief and sorrow. And so the rest in heaven is not a rest. I should have said this earlier. It's not a rest from activity. It's a rest from toilsome, troublesome labor. That's what the rest is. That's what the word means, labor. kopos. It's toilsome, painful labor. And part of our suffering in this world. Part of our laboring is laboring under bodily suffering. As we live with these perishable, weak, natural bodies, as soon as we're born, we mature and then we begin to die. And Life is a process of dissolution, decay. We read in the men's group about Charles Spurgeon, his book on depression and I reminded you in the first hour that of the last 22 years of his ministry, seven of those years he was set aside largely because of physical maladies. And he had to go to the coast of France to find refreshment for his body and wrestling with depression, which no doubt was connected with his bodily ailments. And we are susceptible in these frail bodies to sickness. It just takes a microscopic virus and the strongest man will be laid out in misery, on the sickbed, we're susceptible to all kinds of discomforts and sicknesses, headaches, infections, colds, viruses, flus, organ malfunctions, diseases, muscle and skeletal injuries. But in heaven, we will be free from all bodily suffering. Upon death, we are released from bodily pain. And then when we get that new body, which I talked about last time, it will be totally free from any pain or suffering, no disease, no decay in those glorified spiritual bodies. But then there will be rest in heaven from mental suffering. I think a lot of people would say that my worst suffering is not physical but mental. I think people can endure physical suffering better than they can sometimes endure mental anguish. Isn't that true? Give me a physical affliction, but the mental anguish the mental suffering is far worse. And we have a lot of it. The pain of broken relationships, divorce, betrayal by friends, unrequited love, the pain of a foolish son or daughter who brings grief to father and mother alike, the wrenching pain of losing a loved one as some have done recently, the horrible void created that will never be filled in this life, and that sense of finality, though it is not final. But heaven will put an end to all mental anguish. Revelation 21:4 again, He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning, crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. And then there will be rest from persecution. We said in the first hour that we get to suffer a particular kind of suffering as Christians that others don't suffer, and that is persecution. But the scriptures are very clear that there's going to be relief from the suffering of persecution. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 and 7, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. When Jesus comes again, the afflictors, the persecutors, will be afflicted. And the saints who have been afflicted will be relieved of their suffering. And we know that we have that suffering in this life, as we mentioned in the earlier hour, Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. They hated me, they're going to hate you. Paul says, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And it is our lot in life to have persecution. Now, on the one hand, persecution is consistently associated with joy in the New Testament. In Acts 5.41, Peter and John were, were whipped. They were flogged. And it says, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for his name. It's amazing. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 13, but to the degree that you are share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So there's a sense in which when you suffer for Christ, there's an element of joy in that. I'm doing this for my Savior. I'm doing that with my Savior, and the Spirit ministers in a special way. But that doesn't take away the pain. Can you have joy and pain at the same time? Yeah, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And we are social beings. Don't you prefer to be liked by other people? If anybody says no, we've got to take you to a a biblical counselor. You're a psychopath. Something's wrong. I I want to be liked. I prefer to be liked by people and not maligned and and persecuted and, and looked upon with scorn and mockery and contempt. And so as social beings, it hurts when you get persecuted. There's some pain in that. But oh, the persecution we have suffered thus far is nothing compared to what has been suffered in history and what may await us. Sometimes I'm glad that I'm 71 years old and I may not be around to see the worst of it, but that's very selfish. Hebrews 11:35 35 to 38 talks about the biblical saints and what they suffered. Women received back their dead by resurrection. This is the good stuff. And others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, Jeremiah. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They, were a, they, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy. And you think of the first century and all those martyrs who were thrown into the Colosseum and died at the hands of gladiators or wild, torn apart by wild beasts. Christians were wrapped in animal skins and burned as as lanterns for Nero's garden parties. And then you think of those who suffered under Roman Catholicism in the pre-Reformation period. Um, uh, You think of um, the Hussites and the Huguenots in France and those who died suffered under bloody Queen Mary and the Scottish Covenanters and the Puritans. And you think of those who are being tortured and killed. I read, oh, 10 years ago that in the last 30 years, more martyrs have died for Christ than in the whole history of the church. In the 10 nations that are most persecuting, so many have been martyred. What are they? North Korea, Afghanistan. Somalia, Sudan, Pakistan, Eritrea, Libya, Iraq, Yemen, Iran. So Yemen is here ninth. I read it was third. I don't know. I don't know that they can exactly know. And then India is is right on the heels of that. Our brothers and sisters being tortured and some beheaded and killed today for their faith. But this lot of persecution is only for this present evil age. At the coming of Jesus and the age to come, there will be relief. The tormentors, the mockers, the scoffers will be dealt affliction and the afflicted would be relieved. There's no enemy in heaven. No enemy in heaven. Only friends in heaven. But then, heaven will bring rest from painful labors. Again, Revelation 14, 13, that the rest is not from activity. The language is, Revelation 14, 13, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors. And again, that word labors is, is kapos. It's the word toilsome labor, sweat, trouble. Work in itself is good. We were made to work. Our first parents were given work to do, right? They were given physical work to cultivate the garden and mental work to name the animals. Work is good. Work will forever be good. But what happened with the fall? Work became difficult by the sweat of your brow. Now you're going to till the ground, but it's going to push back. It's going to fight back and work will be toilsome and troublesome. And so heaven will bring rest from painful labors. Manual labor is called that. First Corinthians four twelve, Paul says, and we toil. There's the word, copto, working with our own hands, toilsome labor as a tent maker. Gospel labor, gospel work, is often called labor, copios. Paul says in Galatians four eleven, I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. In Colossians 1.28, he says. Him we proclaim, warning every man, teaching every man that we may present every man mature in Christ. For this we labor or toil, laboring with all the energy he mightily inspires within us. Gospel work, the work of the Lord, is toilsome work. Now, work can be very satisfying, can it? Some of you find great satisfaction in your work, and you should. You make something with your hands, and it's a delight. You repair something that was broken. It's a delight. You manage something. You head up a project. It's a delight. Work is good. But there are also toilsome and troublesome aspects to it. Our bodies get weak. Our minds get exhausted. Our emotions get strained. We get pushback. And so work can be toilsome and difficult. Work for the Lord, which I am called to do, is a delight. It's a joy. I love the Lord's work, but sometimes it's... It's toilsome as well. But what about heaven? We will not be passive, but active. We will worship. We will serve the Lord. Work will continue. It's part of our image of God, the image of God in us. God works and we work. But in heaven, all the work we do will not be toilsome, It will not be sweaty work. It will not be difficult work. It will not be troublesome work. We're going to work in heaven but free from the taint of sin and the fall. Well, finally, next to finally, heaven will bring a rest that is perfect. Again, the language at the end read by our brother this morning, Revelation 21 and 22. Revelation 21, notice it says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Revelation 21 and 27. Nothing unclean shall ever come into it. The rest of heaven will be perfect rest. And finally, the rest of heaven will be eternal rest, unending rest. 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. 22.3. There will no longer be any curse. 22.5. There will no longer be any night perfect rest, eternal unending rest. As we close, what do we take away from this? I want to make one application, basically. And basically, it's it's this. We have perfect eternal rest awaiting us. Rest from every striving against sin. Rest from committing sin. Rest from suffering of every kind. Rest from painful labors. Here's the point. We're not there yet. That's the age of the church triumphant. We're living in the age of the church militant. This is the time to fight. This is the time to work. And I bring us back to the end of 1 Corinthians 15 when he talks all about the resurrection and our glorious future. And he ends with be steadfast, immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It is not empty. And I just want to call us to live in this present evil age and to do our work for the Lord. In your vocation, whether it's as a homemaker in the home, women are to be workers at home, or whether it's out there as a breadwinner, do your work as Colossians 3 says, heartily as to the Lord. Not unto men. Work hard in your vocation. Be excellent at it to the glory of God. Whatever assignment God has given you, whatever skills and talents he's given you, whatever vocation, work at it hard. Though there are toilsome aspects to the glory of God. And do it unto the Lord, not unto your boss. And then in our labor for the Lord, let's use the gifts and opportunities that God has given us To be all we can be and do all we can be in the service of the Lord's kingdom while we have time. The adage is always relevant. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We have only this life. And mine is fading more quickly than most of yours. I'd have less time likely than most of you to work for the Lord in this lost world and how profoundly this world needs what we have. God has called us to live in this time. Yes, it's a present evil age, but God has called us to shine as lights in the midst of this particular crooked and perverse generation. Let's be diligent in that work. Let's delight in that work knowing our labor will not be in vain in the Lord. And next week, I hope to talk about our rewards in heaven because they're there. I close with this. One of my favorite movies, and I'm not a big movie goer, is Gettysburg. And in the movie Gettysburg, the southern troops are lined up at the base of that long hill that they're going to climb. And they're going to do that march into the face of Union cannon and Union muskets. And the movie pictures these southern troops preparing for that long march in what became Pickett's Charge, where they were largely massacred. And it pictures General Armistead, the southern general, looking at his young troops, aware of the fact these men are scared. They know what they're going to face in climbing that hill. And knowing their temptation to run, and not face the danger, at least the movie. If it really happened, you can consult our Civil War resident expert here. But at least in the movie, they put these words in the mouth of General Armistead to his fearful young troops. Sons, what will you think of yourselves tomorrow? You know, when the heat of the battle is over, when the dust has settled, and you didn't rise to the occasion and you didn't put forth the courage, what will you think of yourself tomorrow? It's a good question, isn't it? Well, picture yourself in the final day, or the final day for you. And heaven's rest is in front of you. No more painful striving, no more sin, no more painful labors, no more temptation. You're about to enter into eternal rest. How many of us will regret You know, I spent too much time in serving the Lord. I spent too much energy serving the Lord. You know, I I prayed too much. I read and meditated on my Bible too much. I committed myself to the, the body of Christ, the church, too much. How many of us will have that regret? I don't think any of us. We're more likely regret, though, that we didn't expend nearly enough so may we follow Paul's exhortation to be steadfast immovable abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain so we can work with a view to that day and hearing those words well done good and faithful servant enter into the joy of your Lord Father forgive us for our laziness, our indolence, our lack of love for you, for one another, our lack of heavenly mindedness. And please, Lord, work in us. Make us more heavenly minded that we might be more earthly good. Help us be more diligent and abound more in your work, knowing it will not be in vain, but you will richly reward it. Help us, Lord, for Jesus' sake.